and I just know that this season is short term. It might feel long, I might feel a little burnt out, but I also know that the next season, that's not gonna be the case. I'm gonna figure out a way past it. I'll figure out systems so that I'm not the one there and I'll figure out a way to, to have assets that produce income. And so later on, when I have a family, there's no way I'm gonna be working in the evenings and on the weekends. I had zero desire for it then and I have zero desire for it now. Welcome to A Better Life with Brandon Turner. That is me, where world-class guests share their wisdom on building a better life. Join me as we explore the habits, the actions, and the beliefs that have guided their journey with the aim of helping you apply those lessons to your own. We Justin Donald. So first of all, uh, a couple years ago, and probably a year and a half ago, you reached out to me and were like, hey, I would love to chat with you sometime. And I'm like, who's this guy? And then you follow back again and again, and I'm like just ignoring your you know, texts and calls and all that. And finally, one day I decide, okay, I'll give this guy a shot. And so we talked about, you know, <laughs> this is my side of the story. I'm sure it was nothing like this, but no, but then um, we never actually really got to connect the way we wanted to. And then we have a buddy named Hal Elrod, who is also coming on the show soon. And Hal, I invited him to dinner. I said, hey, bring, bring somebody if you want, if you know anybody cool. And he said, well, I don't know anybody cool, but I'll bring Justin Donald. So he brings <laughs> Justin Donald with. And uh, we went to dinner and we had an amazing night. And I was like, this guy is legit. So here we are now a year later. And uh, I don't know if it's been a whole year yet. It's been like half a year. Maybe has it been a year? I don't know. When did we, when was that dinner? Yeah. You know, it probably hasn't even been a year yet. Yeah, and crazy. what a killer dinner that was. That oh, was fun. That was fun. That was and now we're besties. And, uh, it was a crazy, uh, surreal moment of like epic food, but then there was, you know, the issue in the kitchen with one of <laughs> oh, the yeah. chefs. Yeah. That was gnarly. All, you know, he like collapsed. Yeah. yeah. And literally yeah. passed out. Yeah. That was while making food. Yeah. That's how hard we worked him. It was, it was really good. <laughs> he's okay. So yeah, he's totally fine. <laughs> So yeah, we can joke about yeah, it now. Yeah, he's a good guy. But <laughs> Justin Donald. All right. So I did some research um, via talking to you and to figure, out, <laughs> to figure out a little bit about you. So we've got Justin Donald, your multimillionaire, one of the top 100 largest mobile home park owners. Give me, tell me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff. You have a book that is in the top 1% of all books ever sold ever uh, called The Lifestyle Investor. Am I saying that right? You got it. Hugely successful mastermind. You kill it in that space. You have an amazing wife and kid. A popular podcast, 300. This was shocking to me. You have over 300 active investments. I want to dig into that today. An advisor in dozens of companies and a surprisingly good rapper of 90s hip hop. <laughs> uh, but before all of that, before all of that, who was Justin Donald? Before, when you were just a normal mortal, who were you? Where were you at in your past? Well, clearly, uh, since we did some rapping, you know, mm. off air that apparently was on air, yeah. uh, you know, early <laughs> in the nineties, I was into some hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. I should have known just looking at you. I'm like, that's a guy who's into hip hop. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate <laughs> you're not the first person to say that. So thank you. <laughs> I love telling people that I, I definitely start from humble beginnings. I've got an amazing family, a couple of parents that uh, loved me really well. And Worked hard. My dad is still a hard worker to this day and taught me work ethic. And my mom really just taught me how to relate and interact with people and how to form real relationships, not surface level, but how to actually go deep and talk about real life 
experiences. And so, you know, growing up, my mom had always been the secretary of the church that we went to. And and then my dad either sold or fixed appliances until he eventually sold cars. And then I think got back into appliances and then got back into cars. (laughs) I grew up with this loving family in an area where I felt like the people that we hung out with didn't share many of the same interests from like a business standpoint or from an investing standpoint. And I felt like I had to figure out, you know, who could teach me on these things because I didn't have a network of that. I mean, later on in life, I had a friend whose dad owned a business. So that was like my first introduction into someone in my network that knew entrepreneurship. So that was cool. But really, most of my education came from books, came from authors, came from entrepreneurs, just people that captured thoughts that they had no clue that they were my mentor and they were my mentor. I would read all their work. I would follow them, you know, all all the things that they did. I became a student of all these people that had no clue who I was. Okay. And where was that at in the world? Where were you living then? So I was in a suburb of Chicago at that time at Elgin, uh, Elgin, Illinois. And it's you know about 45 minutes northwest of the city. Uh, so I grew up there, grew up in a house that uh, I walked to elementary school, I walked to middle school, and then eventually uh, went to high school. We ended up moving and uh, ended up going to high school there. And it was a uh, you know, decent-sized suburb of Chicago. Okay. And then so you would, I'm assuming college at some point. Yeah, I went to the University of Illinois. That was the big school in Illinois. You could get some in-state tuition, which was important to me since I was paying my my way. My parents mm. didn't really have the means to be able to afford college, though they wanted to help in any way that they could. And they really encouraged me to go because no one in our family had ever graduated from college. So that was really important to them. And by default, it became important to me. Sure. So what you yeah. major in? I majored in finance. Makes so, sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always found, I mean, it, it's funny. I was going back through, I was, I can't remember who I was telling this to, but we moved not too long ago. And so we were kind of going through, you know, what are we giving away? What are we keeping? You know, that whole thing where you kind of purge. And I went through some of my old yearbooks and I even saw in my middle school yearbook and in my high school yearbooks, I wrote that I wanted to become an entrepreneur. Oh, know? that's awesome. And, and so it was kind of fun, like seeing, cause I couldn't remember when did I want to do that? When did I want to get into the entrepreneurship world or the investment world both had fascinated me, but I didn't know when that curiosity really began. So it was kind of cool to see that it was way back then. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I wanted to be like an astronaut or a fireman or something lame like that. You know, now I'm a finance guy. It's much cooler. All the girls, all the girls love it. Uh, so let's go to, I'm going to jump way ahead of your story now. I don't want to fill in the thing, but you mentioned college and your kids, you know, your parents instilling that belief. Do you still hold that with your kid? How old's your kid? So I've got a 10 year old daughter okay. and I don't hold that belief. I think education is important. I think that for most people, they allow themselves to be educated. You know, for a while it's kind of forced and then maybe you choose college and then for most people, education ends. Mm. And I'm just a big believer that education continues. I want to be a student. I want to be curious every day of my life and I want to keep taking classes, however they may be, through books, through seminars, through podcasts, through conferences. I just want to keep learning because it's, it's really fun to me. But I also think that there's some just fundamental, like, 
imbalances. And I don't think that college is what it was. I don't think that college is the only thing or the only place to go. I mean, I think you can make a strong argument that if you get into some sort of apprenticeship and whatever it is, and it might be an apprenticeship in entrepreneurship, right? It might be learning the ropes there. I just think that there's probably better education out there for certain people, for certain careers, for a certain type of learner. Would you pay for college for her if she wants to go? Have you guys talked about that? Yeah. So my wife had college paid for her and that was really important to her. I didn't have college paid for me. And in the moment, I didn't like that, but that became very important to me because I figured out how to graduate debt-free because I had to work. If I had it just handed to me, I think it would have stunted my growth as a producer of whatever the thing is. So we've, I don't know that there's consensus on it, but I think that we're both pretty comfortable that we would do, we'd pay for part of it. Yeah. You know, there's something, it's not a for sure thing, but there's definitely a trend of when you pay for something yourself, you put a lot more effort into it, right? Like my college roommate, you know, he got everything paid for. I don't think he ever showed up to class one time, right? Or like, in fact, just yesterday, Alex and I were talking about, you and I are part of a mastermind together called The Wellspring. And he asked me, he's like, well, so what do you guys do in that group? I'm like, well, we meet every Monday. He's like, well, do you show up every week? I'm like, every week. Because I paid like $35,000 to be there. I better show up every week, right? Not just because, you know, we get to hang out and stuff, but I paid a lot of money for it. So there's certain value in that. But then when I've been giving free, I've been given free access to a lot of different masterminds. I never show up to those things because I didn't pay for them. And so there's some value to that I see with schooling, right? But at the same time, it's also, you don't want to hamper your kid with, you know, a hundred grand worth of debt to go start, you know, okay, hey, go to the real world. Right. By the way, I appreciate you paying $35,000 to hang out with me every Monday. So thank you. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Really kind it, of you. It was all you actually. That's why um, I joined. Right but there. yeah, I mean, I just think that we can get education a lot cheaper. We can get more specialized education. I don't believe there's any good formal education for entrepreneurship, for example, mm. right? Like what's the best way to become an entrepreneur? Well, it's not to go to school to become an entrepreneur. There's so many better ways. It'd be better to run a business flop and then move on. Like the younger you are to to flop and lose all your money and have something die, like that's the best education you can get. And what a great foundation. And maybe you're one of the 1% that that doesn't happen to, right? And your business takes off. But my daughter has dyslexia. And so the experts really say that dyslexics generally fall into one of four categories of profession. And so when I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it from a different lens. So you've got architecture, you've got entrepreneurship, you've got engineering, and then you've got like the arts. Mm. And so those are generally where most people end up, where most people thrive, right? So I look at each of those and I'm like, well, formal education on the engineering side probably makes sense. I think that one might be harder to do on your own. And I think We've got a good system. Uh, A lot of schools do a good job of that. Some of the others, I don't know. I feel like it might be better to be an apprentice. And by the way, maybe even in engineering. I mean, I could have never made it in engineering. Like, I just know that. So I don't really know what's behind it. I just, I saw how much my friends were working with that major. And I was like, I just, I don't think I could have hung. That makes sense. So before we move on to the rest of your journey, I want to get into some like your rules for investing and all that good stuff. We're going to bring in today's show sponsor, but on the show, we do something a little bit different than a lot of podcasts is we actually donate hundred percent of the profits from each of the sponsors each week to a charity of the guest choosing. So what either charity or what just like cause breaks your heart and why What should we give the money to? 
One of the greatest pieces of advice that I ever received is if you want to become more charitable and great at giving, where it becomes joyful, you know, as opposed to like challenging to give is to find the thing that breaks your heart that you would love to help. So I love that you, you said it and you asked that. For me, it's human trafficking. Like that Mm, to me is like the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being. And so that has been, you know, on my heart, all the proceeds of the Lifestyle Investor, you know, that book go towards fighting human trafficking. Mm. And so there are two foundations and two organizations that we support, and one of them being Love Justice International and another one being Tim Tebow Foundation. Very cool. Yeah. In fact, you and I were together last year in July when we met Tim Tebow together. Yeah, you were in the room when he talked, and that was what really pivoted my entire career, life, everything to make the entire Better Life Tribe, this podcast, all of this came stemmed really from that moment where we heard Tim talk. Yeah, it just changed everything because I realized in that moment, I don't need the money, right? Like, I'll get it another way. We'll get it in real estate, whatever. But hearing Tim talk, yeah, broke my heart. You remember that? Like, like Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was, so not only is he like one of the most passionate people you'll ever meet, yeah. but I mean, that guy can tell a story yeah. and has such a heart for people and is making such a big difference. And it's crazy hearing him say, I feel like I'm not doing enough. And then I'm sitting in the audience like, well, if you're not doing enough, I mean, what about the rest of us? Like, I feel like I need to really up my game. So I would say with you, like that was a pivotal moment for me also. And my wife and I had some pretty deep conversations after that, just about what we wanted, like the impact that we wanted to have, because we don't want to live in the world. We don't want more money to be consumers. Yeah right? For a lot of us here in the U.S., we've got enough or we've got close to enough. So when your income increases, you're either going to consume more, which that's what most people do, right? That's normal. That's expected. That's, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. Or you're going to make the harder choice, which is to save it, invest it, give it away, or a combination of those. Mm, Yeah. Well, let's jump to that ad spot real quick, and then we'll jump back in the question. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about why do you keep building wealth? But let's first roll that ad. Hey, it's Brandon. This ad is only for like a, like 5% of the audience listening to this, but if that's you, you're going to love this. Are you interested in a hassle-free way to grow your wealth? A place where you can earn strong returns without any extra effort on your part and lower risk. Well, besides running my podcast here and the Better Life Tribe, which, you know, 100% of profits of that go to charity, I also manage a profitable real estate investment company called Open Door Capital. You know, our main goal at ODC is to help you achieve a better life through passive real estate investing. In other words, we want to help you make more money so that you can live the life that you desire. Since 2018, we've acquired over $730 million in value-add real estate across the country, delivering exceptional returns to more than 1,500 passive investors just like you. And here's the best part. You can start investing in one of our opportunities right now because our team has diligently evaluated over 700 deals this year to bring you our latest offering. It's called the Texas 3-Pack. The portfolio consists of three apartment complexes totaling 637 units located in Houston and Austin, Texas. We're acquiring these properties off market at a staggering $25 million discount. And by assuming the seller's loan, we have secured a low interest rate of 3.8% for the next seven years. With that interest rate and the price discount, this investment carries less risk for investors, allowing my team to focus on creating value for you. Visit our website at odcfund.com slash better life to connect with my team and determine if this deal is right for you. Again, that's odcfund.com slash better life. Thanks for your attention. Look forward to potentially helping you achieve your financial goals with Open Door Capital. 
All right, man. So I get this question all the time, just alluded to it before the ad, but why do you keep building wealth? I mean, I want to get into how to build wealth. We're going to talk about some of your rules and some of the, the ways you can invest and grow your money, but why do you keep doing it? You have, an, you have enough right now, I'm sure, right? You could, you could pay your bills, probably you could retire, you could sit on a beach for the rest of your life, but you work very, very hard still. Why is that? Well, I think that I've pivoted into the thing that brings me the most joy and the most fulfillment. So today it feels less like I'm working. It feels more like I'm having impact and I'm doing the things that I would do anyway. I took a year off with my family. This was just, I think this was back in either 2017 or 2018. And it was just an incredible experience where we traveled the world. We got a chance to experience different people, different cultures, time together, quality time. And I just journaled a lot trying to figure out like, what, what's next? Like, I don't have to work. So how can I get to work? Mm. Like if I get to work on what I want, like what fills me up, what, where I show up with a ton of passion and feel like I'm doing work that is for the greater good and having positive impact, what would it look like? And I just noticed that every day, the things that I did when I didn't have to, when I was taking time off, were the things that I'm now doing today through the Lifestyle Investor brand. And that's, I love learning. I love teaching. Uh, I love coaching people to financial freedom. I love doing deals, right? So like those things, that's what I was doing. I was helping friends figure out their path to financial freedom. I was learning myself. At whenever I learn, I want to teach. I'm like a conduit. So mm. I read it, I watch it, I learn it, whatever. And then I just, I want to pour it out to other people in my network. And then I just have fun with deals. And so to me, at this point in my career, it's, it's more a way of life. It's more, we can call it a game still at the same point. Like I, I don't want to lose money. I don't want to be a bad steward of the money that I'm being entrusted with. But it's also fun, and I also feel like I've figured out some hacks in that space. So why build more wealth? I think that I have some gifts that lend themselves to me being able to do that well. And then I think that people that are able to do that have a responsibility of giving back in a way that can make the world a better place. And I, and I want to do that. I want to have impact. I want to have impact both financially but I want to have impact on the education side as well. What's your daughter's name? Anna. Anna. Will she inherit your wealth? This is such an interesting topic. The short answer is for sure no. I don't know that I want any one person or one organization to inherit the wealth that we've built. And I don't even believe it's mine anyway, right? That, that I'm, I'm here being a steward of, right? So I don't consider it mine. I'm going to use it while I'm here. And... What I really want to do and what I'm excited about, you and I, we're going to go meet with David Green, founder of Hobby Lobby, who gives away half of the profits of his company since day one. Half the companies. This man has given over $500 million away. Wow. Right? Like, that's incredible to think about. That is inspiring to me. And he talks about having a 150-year legacy and plan. Like, how do you do this long after you're gone? So for me, what inspires me today is not to take my wealth and give it to a charity that's just going to spend it down or give it to a family member that I think money's more likely to corrupt yeah. than, than help or heal. So I think the education around money and the wisdom around money is like the greatest thing that we can be teaching and gifting and making sure that, that we're passing on. 
But from the standpoint of like the actual dollars, I want it to be in an entity where I can find the right team, create the right succession plans, where they can manage it to continue to grow. And it can grow in an entity that has nothing to do with me, but has something to do with my vision of making the world a better place, investing in, investing in people, investing in companies, investing in products and ideas that make the world a better place. So that to me is what inspires me. The legacy piece is not about having my name on a building. I hope to never have that, but I hope to have fundamentals that pass down to my daughter, to her kids, to my cousin, to my nieces, nephews. Like I would like to instill great values, great knowledge and wisdom around money and an equipping of how to use it to your advantage and maybe even an opportunity for them to be involved on the charitable side or even the entrepreneurial side of what I'm really inspired to build. As an entrepreneur and a millionaire, if you were only allowed to teach your kid three lessons about money, what would you teach her? Whew, that's a tough one. Three lessons. I want to make sure I'm getting the right lessons here. This is yeah, like you can take on your time. the spot. I know. You can take your time. It's all, right. all right. So I think I would teach that money is infinite, not finite, that you don't need to have a scarcity mindset around it because that's going to limit your potential and your opportunities. I think that I would teach that money, and we are teaching this one, that money should be used to help others, no matter how much you make, a percentage should go to charitable endeavors and for us tithing, right? So that is really important, that it's not all for us, that we should have different buckets, one of them being give, one of them being save, one of them being invest, one of them being spend. And I think third is probably the power of leverage and potentially using other people's money or other people's talents through partnership, and then also utilizing, we'll call it banks or institutions or seller finance or whatever creative strategy you need to use to own an asset with as small of a down payment as you can. That was designed for social media right there, that question. That was good, right? That was awesome. Yeah, you're going to go really viral. really makes you think. Yeah, you're going viral on that one right there. That was fantastic, man. All right, so let's get back to your story. I want to get to, obviously, you have a lot of wealth and you invest in a lot of companies. How did you get there? You went from college Justin, party animal rapping Justin, to, <laughs> to now multimillionaire. Walk us through that hero's journey. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> hero's journey. That's, that's so catchy. So... I think I just always had this desire to learn, to grow, to know, and I just had this infatuation with what it'd be like to be a business owner, be an investor. I've had some books that kind of shifted early on in my career. It was wanting to be an entrepreneur later on in my career where I felt like I had done that and had succeeded and felt like I needed a new or a different challenge. It was shifting to becoming an investor. So both of those two worlds are, are worlds I play in today that I love, that I'm excited about, but I also get bored pretty easily. So when I feel like I've mastered something, instead of getting better at it, I'm on to the next thing. I'm on to a new thing. So early on in my career, I worked with Cutco and that's how I paid for oh, college. I sold I Cutco. That. Yeah. So that's how I graduated debt-free. 
I don't know how else I would have at that so point. You're doing door to door sales. Yeah. Well, so Is that what it was, uh, or, it, you or know, just begging it, your family and friends. Yeah. So you start <laughs> with friends and family and then you get referrals from them. So I never did like a true door to door there, but my first job I ever did, I did door to door sales. I sold newspaper subscriptions literally in seventh grade, which mm. is crazy to think about, like in the world we live in today, that yeah. as a seventh grader, I was going door to door in neighborhoods that were a ways away from my own neighborhood, that my boss drove a minivan. Actually, my first boss drove a station wagon with a bunch of us kids that went door to door. And then my next <laughs> boss drove a minivan and we literally just got dropped off for the night. So school got done. We would get picked up. We'd go out for the night, three, four hours, knock on doors and then come home. And by the way, I was horrible. Like I I was so bad at it. Like after, and this was a commission only job, but in seventh grade, I don't think you have a whole lot of options. And my parents said, Hey, we're not the bank. If you want money, go get a job. So I did. I went through the classified ads. I circled these, I called them and this one hired me. So I was like, this is great. But after a couple of weeks, I had no sales, which means I wasn't making any money. (laughs) There was no base. (laughs) So I'm like, I either have to get good at this or I've got to quit, but I'd never really quit anything from sports to school to whatever extracurriculars. I'm like, I'm going to figure it out. And so I eventually got committed. I started memorizing scripts. I started learning how to handle objections. I started coming up with my own scripts through trial and error. And over time, I ended up creating the script that was used with our team. And then I ended up taking my own teams around. So as a high school student, I was taking kids around doing this thing to neighborhoods, selling coupon books and newspaper subscriptions. And so that was all before Cutco. So if you had told me that Cutco was door to door, I would have been like, all right, I've already done it. I'm not scared of that. Uh, So Cutco was a lot easier because it wasn't door to door. It was, I'll start with friends and family. I'll get referrals. At first I was horrible at it. So I remember like my list started running out and I'm like, ah, I'm out of people. (laughs) And uh, what'd you do? I had to get more creative. I had to say, okay, well, Maybe I'm out of the people that I know really well. What about the people that I kind of know? Mm. What about the people that I don't know them, but I know someone who knows them? And every kind of iteration got me more out of my comfort zone and just kind of built my confidence that I could do it. And so like I had figured out how to finally succeed with newspaper subscriptions when I really was the worst person in the station wagon, right? Like I was a goose egg for at least two weeks. I ended up doing pretty well in college. And as a college student, I remember making one summer that I sold in five weeks, I made about $15,000 enough to pay for school just in those five weeks because I decided, oh, I'm just going to go have fun for the summer. And then the summer was over in like five weeks. I'm like, well, I need to work hard and make some money. But that opened my eyes to the fact that hustling is like one of the greatest things you could ever do mm. if you are, you know, committed and, and if you are compensated in a way that awards you for success, right? So uh, that ended up being uh, kind of a pivotal time for me to say, hey, am I going to keep selling or am I going to develop a team and teach these young men and young women to do what I did to pay for college? So In between my junior and senior year, I ran an office for the company and did really well, had a lot of fun, decided that I like management and leadership more than I like selling. And And so you got training people how to sell Cutco knives. For those who don't know, what is Cutco? You explain that. So Cutco is a line of kitchen cutlery. It's the world's finest cutlery. They have a forever guarantee. It's a fantastic product. And so, you know, as a young guy, 
I had some great mentors, some people that I could look up to, some people that were instilling confidence in me and teaching me things. And it was just such a great foundation for business skills and work ethic and being rewarded for what you produced. Yeah. And I just like that because if I'm going to be rewarded based on my results, well, once I figured out that I knew how to work harder, that I could work harder, that I was rewarded for working hard, the rest was history for everything, for the businesses I started, for the businesses that I came in and helped consult and scale. That was a game changer. What I love about companies like Cutco and even a lot of like maybe like multi-level marketing companies are similar, which I have a lot of problems with them. But what I do like is that it teaches people to like eat what you kill. People learn that like, I have the ability to generate more income for my life if I get better. And so something, I mean, the fact that you came out of that, Hal Elrod came out of that, John Rulin, I think came out of that, right? Yeah. And there's a lot more that have come out of Cutco that have now become really monster entrepreneurs in our world. And why Cutco? Why did they have an amazing training program or why did that generate so many amazing entrepreneurs? Yeah, I do think they've got a great training program, but I also think that in Cutco, the cream rises to the top and then those people end up hanging out and spending time and sharing best practices and we kind of sharpen each other up, right? Mm. So we're all good at different things. We become friends. We start teaching some of our secrets and everyone's kind of getting better, but we're still competitive, right? So like no one wants to lose and everyone's always trying to be, you know, the best as a performer, But at the end of the day, we hang and we celebrate and, you know, we have lifelong friendships. I mean, I have so many people in my life that are dear, dear friends to this day and is because of that bond and that time that we spent in Cutco. That's cool. So where'd your wealth come from then? So we went from that Cutco to, I'm assuming you got a job at some point or did you jump right into entrepreneurship? Well, besides a stint working at Abercrombie and Fitch while I was at college, which was the model in the front, it wasn't for the money. Yeah. Uh, I, I had several positions. I had several positions. I don't know that I ever had the the physique to be, the you know, the yeah. yeah. But I definitely was the greeter. They liked me being a greeter. I had to work my way up though because I started back stocking shelves. So, but I did that purely for the clothes. Sure, I wanted cool clothes. Those were cool at the time. At least I understand they were. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. But all my money that I made there literally went to buy clothes. But that was the whole goal. That was the intention because I knew that I could sell Cutco or do other things to make the real money that I was making. So I did, I found the hack. What's the least amount of hours I needed to work to be on the schedule to get the discount? Because I think you used to get like 40 or 50% off. So that's what I did. That's really the only job I've ever had right? Everything else has been, I was a a sole proprietor. I was a a 1099 and everything else. Starting in seventh grade, I was a 1099. Oh, funny. uh, Which is hysterical to think about. So for me, like in college, I I knew I wanted to get in real estate. Like University of Illinois is such a great school because they bring in adjunct professors that specialized in the thing that they were world-class at, right? So the largest real estate investor and owner in Champaign-Urbana, where the school's located, he taught all the courses. And he, I was in, you know, another group with him, like a real estate group. And then he ran another, you know, business group that I was part of. And then I had this uh, brilliant guy that was teaching, like, I think the class was like wealth creation. And this guy, as a college student, bought an apartment complex, lived in it, was the handyman while in school, Mm. right? Like at the University of Illinois. I mean, just incredible. We had another guy that taught us arbitrage strategy. 
and it was mergers and acquisitions and spinoffs. And so if you could find that discrepancy, you would let him know and he would put in the money. But since you found the deal, you'd split the profits 50-50. So that was like a real course. That's cool. Where students were making money. We interviewed, so the School of Business had this interview where 20 students were selected to be in a class where we actually managed a million dollars of real money from one of our alumni. And the guy that ran that class was a trader, but he wasn't allowed to do the trades. He could only teach us. He could only facilitate, or at least he chose this. And I thought it was the coolest class because every other Friday we would go have our class in a bar and we'd Hmm. talk about, it was at Murphy's and, you know, we'd have pictures of beer and we'd read the paper and check out the business, business dealings going on. And it was just such a neat thing. But in order to buy a stock, you had to present to the class. And the class had to agree on it in order to sell a stock, the same thing. And so I'm really proud that the first year that they did this class, not only did I get in, uh, I was probably the 20th pick, but I made it. And, and we actually made money for the alumni, uh, which is really, really cool. So those are some of my experiences in college. And I knew I wanted that. I knew I wanted more of that. That was fun to me. Like that lit me up. So When I graduated, I was living in Chicago at the time and all the real estate there, I wanted to buy a three flat or a four flat. Well, I wanted to buy a four flat, right? Four different units. And in Chicago, they're built up, right? So a four unit would just be four floors, one on top of the other. And then I realized real fast, I can't afford a four flat. (laughs) I'm going to look at three flats. And then I realized real quick, I can't afford a three flat. (laughs) So then I just waited. And sometimes people say, what's the biggest regret that you have? And it's truly that I didn't start, that I had a limiting belief that I couldn't get started unless I had the money to buy it. When in reality, we both know now, if you got a good deal, you can always find the money. The money is actually the easiest part, but early on, it feels like the hardest. That feels like the biggest hurdle. And so it took me a few years to get past that. And then I had a friend that said, hey, I'm going to sell all my single family homes. These things are really hard to manage. They're, I'm not making what I thought I was going to make. And I figured out the thing I'm going to invest in. Mobile home parks. <laughs> Do you want to come to a boot camp with me? And I was like, no, that sounds horrible. <laughs> I have zero interest in that. So he went by himself, sold all his single family homes, bought a mobile home park and crushed it. <laughs> and I just watched the passive income roll in. I watched him buy this mansion of a home. And I'm like, you're doing all this with passive income? And by the way, he used to be one of my top sales guys in Cutco. And so I was like, wait a minute. You're not doing Cutco anymore because you got enough passive income to make more than you are making as one of my top sales guys? Okay, this is a reframe here. I've got to figure out what's going on. And that really opened my eyes to putting in so many hours trying to create earned income. I'm trading time for money. And I'm trading a lot of time for money. And by the way, I'm making more than maybe a lot of people my age, but I'm also putting in more time than a lot of people my age. And I just had this epiphany and I had this over a period of time being in my office late at night on a weekend when my friends are out partying and I'm like at the office trying to build a business thinking I can do this for right now. Like in this phase of my life, I can do this, but this is a season. And when this season's over and I have a family, there's no way I'm going to be in the office late at night. There's no way I'm going to be working on the weekends. There's just no way I'm going to do that. So I'm going to put in the time and I'm going to figure stuff out now. And then later, I won't have to do that. And so I was kind of committed and 
that was really the beginning of real estate for me. Can you restate that, what you just said there? Because I don't want people to miss it. That was really good. Like the idea of the different, like at some phase in your life, you just have to put in that time. Can you restate that so I can, honestly, just so I can pull that for a social media clip? Because that was really good. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. So for me, I knew I was in a season of life where I was going to work hard and I was going to put in the time. And I didn't have the assets yet to be able to ride off into the sunset, as uh, one of my first seller finance guys said. Uh, when I when I did a deal with him, I didn't have that. So I knew in that season, the way I got ahead is by outworking everyone. I knew I had to hustle and I had to hustle more than anyone else. And even though my friends were out partying, having a great time, you know, on a Friday night, on a Saturday, like I'm at the office, I'm working. I'm the only one at the office some of these nights, but I'm committed. And I just know that this season is short term. It might feel long. I might feel a little burnt out, but I also know that the next season, that's not going to be the case. I'm going to figure out a way past it. I'll figure out systems mm. so that I'm not the one there. And I'll figure out a way to, to have assets that produce income. And so later on, when I have a family, there's no way I'm going to be working in the evenings and on the weekends. I had zero desire for it then, and I have zero desire for it now. You know, that's such a powerful thought. When people are young, they oftentimes complain, well, I don't have any money, so I, I don't have anything right now. And I'm like, dude, you have the most important thing. You have time now because you do not have children. Children take up so much time and your spouse takes up so much time. If you're before that phase of your life, that is hustle phase. And if you do it right, if you use that time right, the next 50 years of your life will be more enjoyable. It's such an amazing point of leverage that 20 to 25-year-old like person, if you do it right, but so many don't. And so, yeah, the, the biggest encouragement I have for young people today is yeah, invest that time wisely. And you will never look back and regret that. Uh, do you feel like you did that then? I certainly did. And I feel really great because I also feel like now I have the muscle. If I ever had to work hard, if I ever had to rely on my work ethic again, I know I can do it. I know that I can work hard. Yeah. I know if everything failed, if all my investments failed, if all my businesses fail, like I just know that I have the grit yeah. to be able to do it. And that peace of mind is really just it's so comforting. Yeah. I hope that it doesn't ever come to that, but I have no fear because I know I can do that again. All right, let me ask you the same question I asked you earlier, but about a different topic, a slightly different one. I asked you about money, the three things you teach your daughter about money. Let's do the same thing. As a millionaire, entrepreneur, investor, if you could teach your kid three things about entrepreneurship, what would you give them? I think first and foremost, entrepreneurship is a team activity that it can get lonely at the top and you've got to surround yourself with people that you love working with, that you're inspired by, and that are better in certain areas than you are, that have gifts and skills that are are different to you. I think I would also say that entrepreneurship is a creative outlet and it's an opportunity to do things in a creative way as you see fit with the understanding and ability that you may need to adapt also to your environment or to your audience or to your customer. And then I think the third thing is failure is expected. And so there's no reason to not try it. If you have any desire or any inkling of what it would be like to do it because failure is part of it and understanding that there's less fear to get into it then. If the expectation is, hey, I'm going to learn lessons one way or the other, I think those are the things that I would instill on the entrepreneurship front. I love it. All right. So your friend bought a mobile home park. You're looking at him going, 
Well, shoot. Like I should, I, I should do that. Is that, did you jump in and buy one then? So it was interesting because I started going through this activity of, well, do I have the time to do it? Should I lend him money? Because at that time I was kind of a hard money lender for him because mm. I had cash, but I didn't really have any skills in real you were, estate. You were still getting that from Cutco at the, at the point? Correct. Okay. Correct. And so what I ended up doing is I said to my friend, I'm like, okay, you're paying me 10%. So you've got to at least be making 10%, right? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so that's 20%. That's incredible. And I said, well, why don't I just do what you're doing? And my friend Tim said, you should, hmm. which is so great because he could have been like, oh yeah, no, you should just keep lending me money or no, yeah. I'll, I'll pay you 12%. No, he yeah. said, you should get into it. And then he was willing to take me under his wing. And then I went to a boot camp, right? So I, I laughed at my friend for going yeah. to this boot camp. And then all my friends laughed at me because they said, what are you getting into? And I said, oh, I'm going to start investing in mobile home parks. So I went to this boot camp, befriended the guy who ran the boot camp, who happened to be Frank Rolf. I was going to say, was it a Frank yeah. Rolf one? Yeah, we so did a Frank Rolf one too. It was great because Frank and I lived in the same area at the time. Mm. So back then I was living in, in St. Louis. And so we are actually on the same flight. And so we bonded. I took him out to dinner. That's cool. We got to know each other. And he took me under his wing and just was such a great mentor to me over the last 15 years and has become just a really close friend. I mean, I just love talking to him and hanging out with him, but he was very instrumental in kind of helping me on this next phase of my journey. And it, it was crazy because my friend was telling me who was getting into single family homes, like how many homes he had to buy to make the income that he wanted to make and how much work it was. And I saw in one fail swoop him buy one property and it kind of solved for all of his expenses. Mm. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. Well. I don't have that much. He raised most of that money. And I was like, well, I don't know if I know or who I know, or maybe I'm uncomfortable. I've never done it. So I'm afraid to like raise money. I'm going to just use my own money mm. until I figured it out. And maybe I never need to raise money. Um, and, and by the way, I've never raised money to this day. I've always just used my own money. Really? Which is interesting. Like everyone thinks I should start a fund. And <laughs> you know, I just, I didn't have the, the desire for that. So I kept it pretty simple, but I bought the first mobile home park that we have still to this day in our portfolio. And that one purchase replaced my wife's income. So she was a teacher at the time. And that one purchase bought her time back in one fail swoop. She could stay home. We shortly had her daughter after that. She could be the mom that she wanted to be without feeling like she had to work, which is pretty incredible. That's powerful. Why mobile home parks and not like multifamily or, you know, Office, self-storage. Did you look in the other ones? Or I looked there... into a lot. Yeah. Okay. I think part of the allure on mobile home parks is that I had mentors that were doing it mm. that I could copy. Like I was smart enough to realize I don't know anything, but with the right playbook, I can be 70% as good. Like if I did everything I could to follow the program, Maybe I'm 60, 70% as good. And maybe I can work up to 80% or 90%. And maybe in time I can get good enough to evolve and, and innovate the processes, right? But early on, I gained confidence in that if my friend can do it, I can do it. If my mentor can do it, I can do it because I got their playbook. Yeah. And so that was part of it. The other part of it is I like the scarcity. Mm -hmm. So there's a finite number of mobile home parks. There's 44,000 in the US, about 100 get redeveloped a year. So that number decreases, right? 
It's hard to build new ones. It's hard to get the zoning. Cities don't like them because the taxes that they can charge are so small on these homes. So it doesn't cover school or hospital or any of the stuff. So they lose money having mobile home parks, right? So cities don't like them. They're also often not aesthetically pleasing. And I think that we've had this negative stigma of what they are because of many of the different shows that are out there that portray them in a bad way. But a lot of people don't know that the greatest real estate investor of our time and maybe ever, his number one holdings is mobile home parks. And that's Sam Zell, Zell, right? I had a chance to hang out with Sam and, and pick his brain and you know, he's from Chicago like I am, and he got into mobile home parks early. And he said to this day, the greatest investment he ever made was in 1982 when he bought his very first mobile home park. That single investment was his best investment he ever made. For the next 10 years, he realized that this is an asset class that was untouched. So he just kept buying them up. And then at that 10-year point, he went public and the company ELS, his company, number one largest real estate owner, and, and that is the uh, largest real estate REIT. I love when I asked you the question about why mobile home parks. You didn't start. I mean, you didn't start with the tactical reasons or the or the technical ones, right? Like the you know the fact that they're whatever limiting the number of them. Like that's a real thing, right? The yeah. the fact that you can you know your rent raises usually make a bigger impact. The fact that tenants take care of their own problems, toilets breaking. Like there's all these technical reasons that we like mobile home parks. I do them, you do them, right? I love that you started with because I had mentors in the space. Because oftentimes, I think people are always asking the question, like, what is the best investment strategy to follow? And I think it's oftentimes people are looking for a technical reason, like a technical answer. But in reality, it's usually like, they all work, right? Like you could have chosen self-storage. You could have chosen multifamily. You could have chosen dog grooming businesses. They all work. And if people just understood that just business works, generally works if you work it right. So what's actually more important than the technical stuff is the who part. Like, who can you follow? Who can you learn from? What fires you up a little bit? Something in your soul was like, oh, mobile home parks. At that point, you're like, that sounds cool. It's almost like the most important asset is the one you pick versus the most, like that there is some objective data that says, no, this is the best thing. It's whatever one you can pick, learn the most, grow the most, and stick with the longest is the best asset. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that if you're intentional, you're going to find mentors. There are plenty of people that have succeeded at a high level that would love to give back and would love to teach and they're going to get great value out of it. For me, it was like, this is right in front of me. I'd be crazy not to take it. Like, I don't know what the best thing to start in is, but I do know if I've got a mentor, I'm going to be probably pretty decent at that thing in time in short order. It's actually one of the things I love about real estate in general is real estate is such a well-worn path we're not reinventing anything. Like we're just like literally doing exactly what a million other people have done. Uh, and so like when I, yeah, when I'm trying to do a mobile home park, I don't have to be like, oh, I wonder how would this happen? Like, no, it's been done. Just go ask Frank what he did and then go ask Justin what he did. And they're probably the same thing because it's, it's such well-worn paths over and over and over. So yeah, it's really hard. As long as you can keep your ego out of, out of it and you know, I can figure it out by myself. As long as you're willing to ask for help or read the books or whatever, you're going to figure it out. And I love about real estate. Unlike the dog grooming business, I mean, maybe there's a lot of them, but you're kind of making things up at that point. If you're the only dog groomer in your market, you don't know if it's going to be successful. But I guarantee you real estate in your market is going to be successful because it already is for lots of people. Funny story, by the way, during COVID, we bought a dog training company. Did you really? Yeah. So it's funny that you're using that uh, (laughs) because one of the things I love to say is I like to pay attention to trends. And so I mean, this goes a little bit beyond where I had the mobile home parks just basically create a lot of cash flow. Yeah. And it gives the opportunity to 
figure out what else you might want to invest in. And so during COVID, I noticed that all these people were buying dogs. My friends who said they would never buy a dog bought yeah. one. My friends who said they would never buy another one got another one. Uh, all the people in my neighborhood and their homes were just getting trashed and their stuff getting chewed up. And I'm like, this is a great idea. Even though I've never owned a dog, I don't know anything about dogs. I literally don't know the first <laughs> thing about dogs. People will tell me like, oh, what kind of dog do you think that is? And outside of like two or three or four breeds, I have no clue. I just am clueless with dogs. But that business was incredible. And mm. we just kind of tweaked some stuff on the SEO. Patrick Mahomes trained his dog in our uh, uh, dog training studio, which is cool. And that was, we owned it for a year and a day. So we get long-term capital gains and we had an 11X on wow. the dollars in on that business. All because of paying attention to trends and then kind of trusting our gut. So when you invest in a company, let's say, or you buy a company or whatever, how much of your decision in that example was anecdotal, meaning you looked around and you're like, well, this obviously makes sense because of my friends I see buying dogs. And how much of it is data-driven? Like you're in there researching the number of poodles bought in the last 16 months was this many people. Like where, how do you balance anecdotal uh, personal stories versus data-driven investment decisions? That's a fantastic question. I Thank think, uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> everyone comes up with a good one every <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, yeah. So. For the most part, I'm pretty analytical. Like I want to support my theories before I'm going to move forward with it. This one was just so in my face. I just, I knew, mm. I knew that this was a thing like deep in my gut. I'm like, people are buying dogs. Like, I mean, every, I had friends that swore they would never get a dog that got dogs. So like I did in this specific deal, I did so little analytical research. It's probably the least I've ever done before doing a deal. But to me, the biggest thing is more like having the operator in place, right? So yeah. I don't want to be an owner operator. I want to be an owner. So the only way I'm going to buy a business is if I have someone lined up to run that business. So that to me was the key equation. Like I think one of my gifts is that I sometimes can see things that the trends, you know, I call them in my book, I call them invisible deals, right? So what are the deals that are off market? What are the deals that don't even exist until you bring it up and maybe then you can will it into existence? What's going to happen? What are the demographic shifts that are going to provide for something? And so that has been huge for me because I got into mobile home parks before they were anything. I got into single family home rentals before that was officially an asset class. I got into e-commerce early. I got into technology early. I got into cannabis, hemp, CBD investing early. So all these things were kind of like before they took off and then they did. And so I think some of the edge that you can get is figuring that out because we're about to have the biggest wealth transfer in the history of humanity from baby boomers to millennials, right? So you've got about a $76 trillion wealth transfer that's going to happen. So do we know what millennials spend money on, how they spend their time? What do they like to do? Do they like to work as a team? Do they like to work by themselves? What are some of the fun things that they enjoy for leisure? You know, how, what are their travel patterns? Like all this stuff. If you want to figure out what the next big thing is, pay attention to the trends and the shifts and, and what is to come. What's coming? What are some things that you see coming up in the, uh, in the world of investing? Where there's opportunity that you see over the next decade? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because right now I'm, I'm looking short-term a little more than long-term, which isn't always the case, but 
I just feel like there's going to be ample opportunity short term with the banking crisis and some of the things that have happened here with so much real estate that was purchased with bridge loans and floating mm-hmm. rates. We're already starting to see it, right? Yeah. We're all, we've already seen a handful of monster deals come crashing down and investors lose everything, right? Just gone in smoke. So I think that in the next six to 12 months, we're going to see a lot. I mean, there's a lot. If you look at the financials that, that banks have and what's coming due and when some of these bridge loans at maturity, we're going to see a lot more of this because a lot of these deals don't pencil. So part of me is looking at now, like real estate, same thing's going to happen in technology because it's hard to raise money. Same thing's going to happen with operating businesses. I mean, just one other thing is like, Baby boomers, the mm-hmm. mom and pop businesses, like these are going to be a huge thing too because they're retiring yeah. and their kids may not want the business. And so they might literally just shut it down. Some may try and sell it. Some literally might not think that they can sell it. So there's so much opportunity. Can you dive a little deeper on the, the idea of the, for somebody who's brand new, maybe they don't even know real estate, the bridge debt, that whole problem, the floating rate stuff, what does that mean? And why is that so important right now to look at? And, and where can people, I guess, find opportunity there? So we just got done with the last 10 to 12 years. That was one of the frothiest decades, decades plus of human history where like everything seemed to work or most things seemed to work. And you had people that had no business being syndicators doing deals that were self-proclaimed experts because they had one deal go well inside of a perfect economy where you could do no wrong. A lot of people got loose with their pro formas and with their stress-tested financials. So like what I do and what I think any investor should do is you buy a deal and you say, hey, I think it's going to do this. Let me model that. But in case it does exactly the opposite and everything goes wrong, here it is. But most people didn't do a worst case scenario. Their worst case scenario is like a medium scenario that wasn't really a worst case scenario. Most people didn't model that interest rates could go up because they hadn't in a long time, but they have before, they just hadn't in a long time. So you got sloppy, you've got people that just have sloppy practices. And so instead of locking in long-term debt, which could have been done, people wanted the quick win of like, well, let me lock in short-term debt and maybe I can flip this real quick. I can, yeah. you know, improve it. I can value add, right? And that way I can sell it in a shorter period of time than maybe like a long hold type of a position. And so they justified locking in, you know, a bridge loan, meaning it's a bridge to the longer term debt because they want to pull some equity out and make some cash first rather than just locking in 2.5% for 30 years, which they could have done. A lot of people could have done that. And are regretting that they didn't do that, right? Mm -hmm. So the problem with bridge loans is a lot of these are floating rates or variable rates, right? So the the rate is shifting. So you may have locked in at one rate, but now you're operating at the current rate, which is two or three or four points higher than what you had modeled. And now it doesn't work. The calculations don't work. You're underwater. So what are you going to do? Are you going to buy something with negative cash flow where you got to raise more money, but you might not be able to raise more money? Maybe the deal's so bad that no one's going to give you more money. Your deal's just going to die. So right now on these banks' balance sheets, they have all these loans that are coming to maturity for projects that likely aren't going to pencil with today's interest rate environment. And so there's going to be an opportunity to buy these, which we're seeing, right? We've already seen some groups come in 
and buy huge portfolios for pennies on the dollar. And there will be more of that. Mark my words. Yeah, we just lended a $120 million portfolio of three apartments, one in here in Austin, and then up two up in Houston. And uh, I think we're when this episode airs, we're probably right around the fundraising period for that. But yeah, we got that from a seller who needed to sell like now because of bridge debt maturity coming through and wasn't where they wanted it to be. And so, yeah, we were able to get arguably the best deal I've gotten on an apartment in, in since I've started this thing because of that. And I think we're going to see more. In fact, I think two years from now, I'm going to look back and be like, oh man, that wasn't even the best deal. I've gotten That's a bunch right. more since then because yeah, there are people who are going to have to just sell rapidly and sometimes they won't be able to. And That's so right. I think we're, I mean, does that lead to, my guess is that's going to lead to, especially in the multifamily space, do we call them short sales and multifamily? I mean, we call them the single family shorts. I guess, is it short sales? Yeah. We're going to see, we're going to see people just handing the keys essentially I back to so. the bank and saying, Hey, can't make it work. Sorry. And then investors losing their money. And that's right. Yeah. This is happening right now. Like I hope everyone realizes this is not speculation. Yeah. Like one deal, 300 million in equity gone. Another yeah. deal, 76 million in equity gone all in the last week, yeah. week and a half. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, you've done a lot of stuff and I want to get back to your story a little bit, but you start with mobile home park stuff. You obviously, you said you got an all the way up to dog sitting, right? How do you value and how do you look at specialization versus diversification when it comes to, it's kind of a two-part question or maybe you call it a four-part question, diversification and speculation. But when you're trying to build wealth, so you're trying to build, like when you went out there and did the mobile home park thing, you could have bought a mobile home park and then a dog thing and then something else. But did you specialize for a while and eventually you can diversify once you have the money just to be an investor? Or how do you balance those things? That makes sense? Yeah, there's definitely two different schools of thought on this one. And by the way, you've got some of the most successful investors in the world that subscribe to both, right? Some say to completely diversify, some say to completely specialize. So I think both work. There are different strokes for different folks. But what I do think is if you pay attention to where most wealth is created, most of it is created via specialization. So becoming an expert in something and pouring your energy and resources into a thing. And for, you know, in the United States, it's primarily in, in businesses, entrepreneurship, right? Well, you can see some trades that are specialized that then they turn those into businesses as well. But it's from an entrepreneurial lens is generally where the largest wealth is created. But that's not where you maintain it. So there's a shift, right? So you build your wealth through specialization. But if you don't want to lose it once you have it, I think you you protect it by diversification. Mm. And so for my journey, I created wealth via specialization in mobile home parks and created cash flow, covered our lifestyle. You know, after I bought that first park, I bought a second one that covered our, our survival income. So it wasn't our lifestyle yet, but it covered all our bills. Mm. And then I bought a third one that covered our lifestyle. So then we were good. And then I got a fourth and a fifth and that covered my earned income. And so it was interesting because at a certain point in time, my friends were like, man, you're crazy. Why would you, why would you leave this high paying business, like this job business? It's kind of like a little of both. I had a business underneath someone else's business, right? So I was running the majority of the business, but not all the business, but they thought I was crazy to walk away. They're like, you could double up in income. And I said, my goal was never to make more money. My goal was to buy my time back. When I own my time, I can spend it as I want. Like that's more valuable to me than making more money. Most people want to make more money so that they can then eventually figure out that they really just wanted more time. And so I think I followed enough smart people before me 
that painted me a picture of the direction to go in, right? Buy your time back first. So I say this because I got to the point of financial freedom from specialization, but then the paranoia of what if this doesn't work out? What if this income stream fails? What if something happens, a natural disaster comes through and insurance doesn't cover what it's supposed to cover or whatever? I was like, all right, I need to diversify my passive income. So that's when I started getting a lot more streams of income. And then eventually it was, okay, I've got plenty enough income or cash flow. So now how do I diversify my portfolio? How do I get my portfolio to look like the portfolio of the wealthiest people in the world? If you study family offices who manage money for the wealthiest people, pay attention to what they do. Pay attention to the wealth managers and and the asset allocation. And they all rhyme. I mean, none are exact, but they're pretty darn close. And you will see that the wealthiest people have their money spread out across many different asset classes. And so that's what I wanted to model. And I think that whole strategy is a hedge. This isn't working out. You lose money here. But this is working out and you make money here. And you're actually making more money than you're losing. So you have a net win because of this diversification. So again, you're less likely to lose your wealth but you probably don't start that way. I don't think that that is, you can gain wealth that way, but I think that it would be built over a longer period of time than how it could work in specializing in something. That makes a lot of sense. I like that thought a lot of you, you specialize to build it and you diversify to keep it. Though I would even argue when I look at you, it may look like you're diversified across a lot of different investments, but in reality, you are just very specialized in a higher level than you were before. So what I mean by that is you are highly specialized as an investor now that happens to have a lot of different investments. The same way I am specialized right now in, let's call it real estate investing, but I've got five different asset classes that I do. You're in a similar boat. So it's like almost like the diversification and specialization thing. It's almost the same thing. You just elevate up and you specialize up. Uh, I feel like there's a book in there somewhere. But speaking of book, let's talk about Lifestyle Investor. Where'd the book come from? Why'd you write it? What's it about? Well, you know, it's interesting with this book because in my head, I've always had these thoughts and these ideas that I wanted to capture on my dreams list. I I started in 2006, I made a dreams list and it was to capture all these things that I wanted to do in life at some point in time. And it's like this ongoing running list that I keep adding to and I keep crossing off and it's such a fun list and experience and, and way of living. But I had on there way back when to write a book. And at that point in time, I had no clue what I was going to write a book on. But the more I learned, the better I got at different things, the more I felt like, you know, I probably could teach some of these strategies, some of these things. Like, I think I've got some expertise here. And I had friends for years saying, hey, man, you should write a book on what you're doing with investing. You should do a course. You should do, you know, a mastermind or a class or whatever. And I just, for the longest time, just felt like, I don't know if that's me. I don't know if I'm good enough to do that. I don't see myself as an author. I don't see myself as a teacher that way, but I love to teach. And then I was hanging out with one of my friends and one of my mentors, and we were taking a walk around Town Lake here in Austin. And he said, hey man, I've been asking you for years. A bunch of our friends have been asking you for years to write a book. We want to know what you're doing and nothing seems to work. So I'm going to ask you another question. I'm like, okay. And he says, what happens if you die and your daughter never learns all these things that you've figured out in the investment world? And I was like, oh, 
I mean, it felt like, like a punch to the gut. I felt like the wind got a little knocked out of me without any physical contact. And the next day I started writing the book. And for me, part of it was like this, am I good enough to do that? Am I a phony? Like, do I have anything that people care about? Are like my ideas even interesting to anyone other than me, Mm -hmm. you know? And then I just pictured me like writing and I'm like, I don't know. I just, I don't see it. And then I had a friend say, well, why don't you just record it? And I was like, I could do that. I like to talk. And that was it. And so I just, I needed some coaching, some guidance around it. And then I just hit record. I just started talking. I just started coming up with stuff. And then it was fun. It was this creative project. It was like this artist in me came out that I never knew that I had. I used to tell people like my whole life that I didn't have any artistic talents. My brother's actually an incredible like artist. He can draw and it's just, it's beautiful. And I'm like, I did not get gifted with the art, you know, gene. And then it was funny, like as I'm writing, I'm like cooking. And then I was making something and my wife's like, that was so good. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm being artistic in the kitchen. It was like this epiphany of like, I actually have some artistic ability. This is really cool. So probably timing had a lot to do with this and probably having uh, content that was interesting at the time, but I would have never in a million years guessed the book would do what it did to become a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller and USA Today bestseller and top 1% of all books sold. It's crazy. I just never dreamed that anyone would find what I find interesting also interesting. Yeah. Well, and in the book, you talk a lot about like some of the rules that you have for investing. Do you mind going through some of those today? Yeah. So my goal with the book is that I wanted to help people figure out financial freedom the way that would be applicable to their journey. Because everyone's journey is a little bit different. And the way I did it isn't necessarily the right way for everyone, but it can paint a picture to a way and maybe you take pieces and you do that. So I wanted to capture what's my criteria. Like whenever you invest, I think it's important to have an investment criteria and it's Mm. a list of questions. And these can be, it needs to have this or it can't have this, but probably not more than one page. I mean, maybe two pages. I like to keep things simple. If it's on one page, it's probably going to happen. If it's 20 pages, I just don't think you're going to use it the same way, right? So a one-page document that has all the questions that you ask when making an investment, and if you can get clear on what that is and what your priorities are, then I think that you're rooting yourself in like fundamentals, in logic, and you're rooting out the emotion. Yeah. So most poor decisions come from being too emotional, to not being grounded. So that's why you see, like, take a look at all the stats. People sell during the greatest panic, right? So it's the worst time to sell. Why? Because their emotions get the best of them. And we can look back in history over all the times that it happens. That's just human nature. But what if you game it out first and you say, hey, when I'm highly emotional, I'm going to come check this one-page sheet that has all my investment criteria, and I'm not going to let my emotions trump this page of logic that I created in a time of, like, a good frame of mind from a strong conviction. And so that was kind of the, the thought that I had is like, how do I create this criteria and get what's in my head out on paper? And these can be the lessons that my daughter, you know, at that point in time, I was like, I don't know, maybe 50 or a hundred people will buy my book. Right. <laughs> I, I just had no clue how many were going to buy it. And I was banking on, you know, having at least a handful of friends that would say yes. But what got me to buy it is my daughter would read it at some point. And, uh, and so I wanted to capture my criteria or part of my criteria, which I think is the more important criteria 
for buying your time back because it's not based on net worth, which I think is culturally, that's what everyone wants to track, but there's less utility in it. You know, I know a ton of people that are asset rich and cash poor. They can hardly pay the bills, but their net worth is really high. I had a lot of cash flow before I ever had a high net worth. Yeah. Like I had great lifestyle before I was a millionaire. And so that to me is way more valuable. And so I wanted this criteria to be able to help people figure out how to live life today, have utility today. If all your money's in the stock market, you don't get utility on that today. That's for tomorrow. If your money's tied up in a company exit, but we don't know if or when it's going to exit, it might be 10, 20 years. You might not even know it failed for 20 years, right? It's, I want utility today, and I want to teach people how to have that and buy their time back now, and then we can figure the rest out later. So what are some of the criteria that you now today look for when you're going to either invest in a company or buy one? So my first commandment to lifestyle investing, to cash flow investing, and, and to the path for passive income and financial freedom is lifestyle first, right? So I don't want to buy a job. Mm. I have been very blessed with the partners that I've had. And by the way, the partners that I work with are the most incredible human beings. My friend who I'm so thankful I was able to pluck out of corporate America when he was making $65,000 a year and plug him into the dog training business that the owner was taking a $75,000 a year salary. I was like a 10K bonus, plus gave him a whole bunch of equity, and now he's out of the rat race, right? He is mm-hmm. out of corporate America forever, which was one of his goals. And so like, I just feel blessed to be able to partner with someone like that where he's appreciative for the opportunity. And then I'm appreciative because it buys me lifestyle. I can make an investment in an asset that produces income that doesn't require my time. That's huge. And so early on in my career, by the way, I was willing to make the trade-off of spending time if that time was going to yield a better return or better result than the thing that I was doing. And that ultimately is what allowed me to figure out how to do mobile home parks and how to do it right is that I did everything. But that also allowed me to get rid of this huge time-consuming business and pivot into the less time-consuming gig. So it was a lot of time for both in the beginning, but I pivoted out quickly. Now my rule is, now that I know that you can do this without spending more time, that you can buy assets that produce income that don't require your time other than financial analysis on the front end, it's like a one-time commitment you inject time once and then it just pays a return forevermore. That was very interesting, very intriguing. And that's followed quickly by my second commandment, which is to de-risk the deal. So how do we adhere to what Warren Buffett says, right? Which is don't lose money. Rule number one, don't lose money. Okay. How do I invest in a way where not only can I not lose money, if I were to lose money, I'm not going to lose all my money. Like, what are protections in place? And there are tons of them. There are tons. There's ways that you can insure with collateral or a personal guarantee. There's ways that you can take money out early. There's ways that it cash flows early. There's ways that you can get parts of the principal repaid before the end of the term. There's a lot of ways to de-risk a deal. Can we do that? Can we find deals that we can invest in? You know, if you invest in a stock, and you put however much money in that stock, let's say you put $5,000 in it, you could lose all that money. There are investments that the worst case scenario on that investment, you cannot lose all your money. What's an example of that? Well, 
depending on how you would invest in real estate, there's certain certain real estate asset classes, certain prices that you could go in on where you could invest in the real estate. And let's say that the worst case happens, you've got to sell it for a loss, but you're still making some of that money back. Now, some of the deals that are structured today, people can lose all their money. So I don't, I don't want to make it seem like you can't lose all your money in real estate. But if done right, if proper due diligence is done, if you know homework is done, you can buy real estate where you are not going to lose all your money if things don't work out. And yeah. so I like that. There are businesses where you can structure the terms. Let's say you're acquiring a business. You can structure the terms on a seller finance note or in a different way where money is only being allocated over a certain period of time. I've bought businesses with no money down before. I've bought deals with 5%, 10%, 15% down. So if that deal failed, I could walk away at any point in time and I have not lost all my money. And in many of these instances, I've made a lot of this money back. So let's say I put 15% down. Uh, some of the, you know, there was a business I put 17% down when we acquired this business. And in the first four months, I made more than the 17% down. Yeah. So I was already playing with house money at that point in time. It was impossible for me to lose all my money. And in fact, at a certain point, it was impossible for me to lose any money. That's great, man. Business versus real estate. What do you like today? Who? that's tricky. I like them both. A lot of people want to get into the, what is better? I think everything, I used to be like, all right, you know, is it door A or is it door B? Door A is right and door B is wrong. I don't subscribe to that anymore. I think door A has pros and cons. Door B has pros and cons. And then we need to figure out what, where we are in life. What season of life are we in? And how do those pros and cons align with where we are and where we want to go? So I think both can be great. And I think both if done well, can be excellent. I think both have done poorly can be horrible. So I think real estate, generally, you have less turbulence. You are likely to probably have more of a consistent appreciation over time. You likely have less risk of loss if structured the right way, but you don't have the outsized return that you could have in a business. And even in a short period of time with a business, you're likely going to experience, you know, a lot more fluctuation. And by the way, if you start a business versus buy a business, like I'm way more into buying businesses. I have started businesses. They take a lot. They take yeah. heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears. And today I just would never start. I shouldn't say ever. The likelihood of me starting a business is not good unless it were a passion project. Like the lifestyle investor to me was a passion project. And I didn't, ever think I was going to start another business. Yeah. You know, this, this was a hobby turned business. So I don't feel like I'm working, but I wouldn't probably start anything else. Yeah. And if I were to buy, you're buying with a certain understanding of the financials, a certain understanding of who the customer base is. You might know some things like there are some businesses that you can buy that it's a stable business. All you got to do is tweak some SEO. All you got to do is create some systems because everything's handwritten and you can just throw some software in there and it's going to go to the moon. And so what I like about it, and also you can buy businesses that have already built in the ability to pay an operator a good amount, like a, a reasonable amount where you're going to have retention. So that I really like, but it could go to zero, right? Yeah. It could totally die or it could go to the moon. 
I have a hard time of saying this is better than that. I like them both. I invest in both of them today. And in fact, in the last, what, four months, I have bought or invested in both. That's cool. Very cool. How do you find operators? Like how have you found success or failure in getting the right people to run your companies? So operators are one of the toughest positions to fill, but it's interesting because there's not a shortage of desire for this. And a lot of operators, once they learn how to do it, like that's a foundation for how they then can go become an entrepreneur on their own, which I think is cool. For me, I just have a network in working in a bunch of different businesses from back in the Cutco days, you know, I had one of the largest regions in the company or one of the largest divisions in the company where, you know, we worked with 4,000 people in a year, Mm -hmm. right? I think we had three or 400 different managers. And so I've got a lot of different people there that I can pick from that a lot of my operators have come from that pool. I opened a retail store for Cutco, uh, one of their first retail stores. And so I had that type of operator in there running things that I've been able to work with. I have started some other companies from the ground up. Uh, There's a company called Stellar that's a single family home maintenance company that Early on, we got some contracts with some of the largest owners of single-family homes in the nation. So if you think of like Blackstone and their arm for single-family homes or Invitation Homes arm, they're the largest or they were the largest owner, like 82 or 83,000 single-family homes, right? Like that's a ton. And so we built this huge company that became one of their top vendors and many of the other big institutional players. And so there's just a huge team there. And then I've done some consulting over the years. And, and so I have found people in each of these different places that I've been able to pluck and put. And, and by the way, part of the reason I feel like I've been able to do that is I am very intentional with relationships and I'm very intentional with being sure that I'm adding as much value as I can. So even though maybe we've parted ways and I'm no longer there or that person's no longer in the business, I stay on good terms. And often when the opportunity arises, people are excited to kind of get back together and work together again. So I I think that that has been a huge help in just treating people well enough, treating them well so much so that they want to come back. If you had to to put in order, rank in importance, these three categories or whatever you want to call this for finding an operator, what's most important, second and third, between skill set, like the person that has like whatever, the skill in that thing, experience, having done that specific operation before, or we'll call it personality. You can call it culture. Like what's most important to you? Is it, yeah, skill set, experience, or culture? Whew, that is a great question. In fact, by the way, I have my, you know, so I talked about having a, an investment criteria, yeah. which is basically my book, my 10 commandments. I have a real estate investment criteria. I also have an operator's Mm. criteria, like a partner's and operator's criteria. So I have a ranking of the top 10 characteristics that I look for that I will not hire. And by the way, I have hired, before doing this, I hired and crashed and burned on some because I didn't have my own criteria. So what you've talked about, it's interesting. Like, are you buying a business with systems already built? Because then that operational side, the skill or the expertise side may be less relevant Mm. versus like you're buying a business that has no systems. I actually really need someone with those systems. You said experience, skill, and And then culture. Yeah. If you're ever going to have a team, I think that culture one's really important. But an operator needs to be able to, it needs to follow a protocol or needs to build a protocol to follow. 
if I'm involved and early on I was involved, I could cover the culture because I liked that and I was good at that. So I would hire operators based on the things I didn't have, skill and expertise. If this is going to be a small business, I'm going to lean towards skill and expertise. If this is going to be like, when I say small, like small team or maybe even, you know, one or two or three person team. Yep. If it's going to be a bigger team, the culture one starts to creep up. I think you can hire uh, consultants. I think probably I would go culture, expertise, and skill. But depending on the business, yeah. I'd flip-flop them. Yeah. Yeah, it does kind of depend on the business a little bit. Maybe another way to look at this question would be, have you typically found more success in bringing in people who are maybe like young and hungry and you can train them and make them a leader in your companies? Or, hey, they were already the CEO of a company that did exactly this, so we're going to pull in that person. Or again, does it just depend? So I think it depends, and I've done both, and I've done both a lot. Today, my answer is going to be different than early on. I love bringing young, hungry people. Like at the top of my list is work ethic, mm. right? Yeah. So like I want a hustler. I want someone that will put in the hours and I don't feel bad asking for it because when I was their age, that's what I did. Yeah. Right. And, it, and I feel like that was huge for me. So that's like top of the you know, hierarchy to me is like, can you put in the time? Are you teachable? Are you adaptable? I also think like, do you have humility or are you just full of ego? Are you coachable? Do you take initiative? One of the big things that I want are initiative takers. I don't want you to ask me for everything to do. I want you to have the freedom and the space to be able to make mistakes and learn from them and we can do it together. And I'm okay with you making mistakes on my dime. Like that's how you're going to learn. And I want to create independence, not dependence, yeah. right? So when I think of like, what do I want? Well, in a business that is maybe more established, I probably want the person that has the expertise, right? Someone that has a proven track record that can come and take it to the next level. But in the beginning, I probably want scrappy. And I probably want someone that I can teach that is, they're adaptable, they're hardworking, but they're coachable. Hmm. That's awesome, man. All right. Well, we got a lot more commandments that we could cover, but we're not going to, because here's what I would love to do is I would love to obligate you and awkwardly ask you publicly, would you mind coming to lead a mentor call for the Better Life Tribe at some point in the next few weeks? I'd so love cool. to. All right. Good. That'd be awesome. Look at that. Now everyone's got a reason to join the uh, Better Life Tribe because you're going to come teach the rest of your commandments and whatever else you want to talk about on a Thursday mentor call. Alex, you get with that? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, with that said, let's move on to a segment that we uh, don't have a great name for, but we're going to tentatively call it, te what is it, seven minutes, seven things, right? What, what are we calling that? We'll call it seven minutes, seven tips. I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, teach me something. Teach me, yeah. You got seven, 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 minutes. seven steps in seven minutes. So what I would love you to maybe, and, and if you disagree with it, you can tell me something else you want to teach. Basically, we're going to set the timer for seven minutes starting right now. And you're going to teach how to do something to somebody who's brand new to this thing. I think it would be interesting to talk about buying a mobile home park, but I'm also okay buying a business for someone else. What would you like? What do you think? Like if you had to teach somebody in seven minutes how to buy a mobile home park? Well, I think buying a mobile home park is easier. So maybe that's the one that okay. we go with, sure. right? So I think it's like a, a lower barrier to get in and just easier. Yeah. So let's talk about it. All right. Seven minutes go. All right. So first thing, yeah, I talked about this before, but it's having an investment criteria. What does that criteria look like? So for me, I wanted to be in a larger metro. Like that was important to me, you know, 100,000 people or more. So that way there was demand for housing. Yep. 
I think that the the employers in that area need to be strong. So I like government jobs. I like education. I like, you know, so like, you know, colleges, universities. I like hospitals and, and medical. Like those businesses tend to stay in business, right? It's a little, like it's dangerous if you have a one-trick pony and that company goes out of business. Well, that area might be in trouble. So... I like finding properties that are in legal, non-conforming status where I'm grandfathered in. So a lot of mobile home parks are going to have that grandfathering status. So in other words, I just don't want an illegal property. And it is possible to buy illegal properties that the, you know, they're operating a park or whatever the business is. This isn't just in mobile home parks without a license or with a license for maybe less than what they're operating for. So it needs to be legal. I like when it's non-conforming because then I can, you know, I got a lot more latitude on on the type of, you know, homes that I'm going to bring in. Checking out rents in the area. What are the rent comps? How many other competing properties are there? What are the price points at? That's important to me. What is the other comparable? So like if someone's not in a mobile home park, then they're probably renting an apartment. So what's the apartment rent for a two-person, three-person? And at a certain price point, you can be below that all day, every day. The, the price, what's the average price of a single family home? Mm. If that is high enough, you know, if that's over $100,000, $125,000 to buy that home, then that all day, every day is good for mobile home parks. You know, you have too low of a, a home price, then it makes it really easy for someone to buy a home instead of a mobile home, yep. right? So that would be another criteria that I would have. I like city utilities, so city water and city sewer. To me, that's really important. I think that uh, you take a lot of risk off the table when you're not the one having to, something goes wrong, you know, because you didn't, the pH is off or whatever. I just don't want to mess with that. So I like that being the city's responsibility. Yeah. Those are many of the criteria. Like, I don't like a lot of park-owned homes, meaning I want parks where the tenants own the home, not me as the owner or, you know, the, whoever the current owner is. I'm not in the rental game. I don't want to be in the rental home game. I want to be in the lot rent game. I want to be in the, I collect a check because you're renting land and that is mailbox money. I don't want to be in the business of all the maintenance and all the other things because that takes time. And most people don't realize it is hard to make money in that. You have a higher top line, but the overall profit is not greater. So that to me is important. So I like few park-owned homes. So percentage-wise, I like making sure that the occupancy is at 70% or greater because then it's easier to get a bank loan, Yeah. right? Banks like, you know, what they would consider stabilized occupancy. I've bought them at 30%, 40%, and they're just like, there's a lot of upside opportunity. It's just a lot of work, yeah. right? So I'd rather, you know what I would rather buy? I want to buy a park where... All the tenants own their own homes. It is 90 to 100% full, and it's all the other things I just said. And so there's less meat on the bone for me to make profit, but I'm going to buy it based on a multiple, a a cap rate or a multiple on net operating income. And that's, you know, and I'm okay with that. I'm just buying it based on the income that it will produce. Mm -hmm. And then in time, you know, be able to do rent raises. So going from there, I would say cap rate is important to me. When I buy a mobile home park, I'm looking for a three-point spread. And so that's your difference between the cap rate and the interest rate. And so today, 
it's interesting because you got a lot of people that haven't figured out that the cap rate changes. The interest rate is so high now. What you sold for last year, even four months ago, is not what you can sell for this year. Yep. So a three-point spread, or meaning I bought at a nine cap and the interest is at 6%. You know, that, that would be a three-point spread. A three-point spread is a 20% cash on cash return. Worst case, I could maybe do a two-point spread and with a rent increase, know that I can get to that three-point spread pretty quickly. I don't really like doing less than that because there's just too much risk, too much. It's like the whole stress testing. Like in a worst case scenario, if I have a three-point spread and I did everything wrong in this thing, I just totally botched it. If I have a three-point spread, the thing is still going to profit with all the mistakes. So those would be kind of like the beginning lineup of what I would look for in purchasing. I would look to do seller finance as much as I can. That's non-recourse, meaning if it doesn't work out, you can walk away and that seller can't go after your assets. I like that. They can go after the one asset there in that property and take it back, but not your other assets. And then you don't have to have anything. You don't have to go through the hoops of getting a bank loan. And right now, seller finance is easier than it's been in a long time. And with mobile home parks, it's usually easier than... For sure. For sure. And then... I like finding properties where you can do a quick rent increase. I think that's good. I like finding properties where you can bill back water and sewer that they're not doing that. So I can sub meter and then people are charged for what they actually use. And then you find less people actually abuse the water and just leave it running because they're actually paying for it. But keep in mind, in all these scenarios, this is like, sometimes people are like, well, you're going to raise the rents. You're going to do all this stuff. Like, If we don't raise the rents and this thing doesn't produce enough income, it gets redeveloped into something else. So you lose the housing. So like you have to have market rent and anywhere you look at it, these rents are lower than any other option available. Seven minutes. minutes. That was good. There's the timer. All right. Any uh, follow-up last point to make on there and then we'll move on. That's good. The other thing is if you're going to buy a 20 space park, why not buy a 50 space park? Yeah. If you're going to buy a 50 space park, why not buy a hundred space? It's basically the same amount of work. Yes. Yeah. We have found when we started, we're like 50 units with what we're going for. We bought a 50 unit and it was hard work like we'd expect. And then we bought a hundred unit and it was about the same hard work, maybe even easier. And then we bought a 200 lot park. And, you know, today we've got, I'm going to call it 5,000, give or take lots. And, you know, we won't buy anything today that's under a hundred, usually not under 200. Like we're like, if we're going to do the work anyway, in fact, the larger you go, it's a lot of times you have the economies of scale, so it's actually easier. You have on-site management or on-site people, more systems, everything's better. You're working with better banks, higher loan amounts. Every single piece of the puzzle is actually easier, except for the money, like having to come up with the money. <laughs> that's the only thing that's more challenging, but we figure that out you know, with raising capital through open-door capital. So it's uh, 100% agree with that. Awesome, man. Well, that was a good segment, man. We could talk for hours. I got a million more questions written down here that I want to go through, but I do want to start getting us towards closing up here. So why don't we move to these kind of the last few questions I ask every guest every week. First one, let's go with what are three things that you have done in the past year or so that's given you a better life? Well, I think first and foremost is creating a calendar that reflects my priorities Before, I think I would say, you know, a lot, I would pay the lip service that I'm a family man first and a businessman second. And I think that in the last year, last number of years, I think every year I've gotten a little bit better at this, which is my calendar is going to show my priorities. Mm. So whatever that shows is where, you know, my heart is. 
And what I could see for a long time is that I was planning business first and family would fill the gaps. Whereas now I'm so much more intentional with, okay, family dinners here. We're, you know, going to have this weekend plan. We're going to go on these trips. We're going to do these things. So like the family stuff gets planned in and then everything else around it. And so that is one thing that I think has done wonders for the quality time that our families had. That's been really fun. I think having a coach in whatever area or many areas that you want to improve in, I cannot emphasize the importance in my life for having mentors and coaches in whatever I've done. So when I was in real estate, I had a real estate coach, you know, a a mobile home park, specifically a mobile home park coach and mentor. And, you know, from a health standpoint, I frequently almost always have some sort of a coach in that department from the standpoint of even like marriage or family, like having coaches and mentors that are doing things the right way there. You know, I've got a coach that I think helps me better in business. And I, you know, often will hire people where I'm not good at. So in the last number of years, like my current coach who I'm going to go see, I'm flying out to Nashville tomorrow. That has been huge for me from the standpoint of like the structure of lifestyle investor and building out that team so that I don't have to run the day-to-day of it, right? That's been massive because that then buys time back to make it easier for me to live in the hours and with the people that I want to spend the most time with. Yeah, um, and then the third thing is just creating time to, to learn and grow. I mean, that to me is so important. I mean, that's what I do first thing in the morning. For me, I'll, I'll get up, I'll do devotions, and then I will read. And I read every morning, and my family's not up, and I read, and I get in generally 30 to 60 minutes of reading every single day of my life. And I love it. That's powerful, man. Well, speaking of reading, next question. I call this uh, a pivot book is a book in your life that where your life was going one direction and then you read it and you pivoted to a new direction. Those are pivot books. So what are three pivot books in your journey? Early on, I would say How to Win Friends and Influence People was huge for me learning how to develop relationships, for me learning how to, to lead teams of people to get beyond surface level. So that one, I think, was really instrumental for me as a relationship guy, as a team builder, as a culture setter. That one was just, I mean, still Dale Carnegie just goes down as like one of the best. The book that has had the most impact on me from the standpoint of like direction of my professional path and really the transition from businessman to investor. And I say it that way because this book opened my eyes to the fact that I wasn't what I thought that I was. And let me explain. So Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki was so eye-opening to me that I thought, you know, he had this quadrant of, are you an employee? Are you self-employed? Are you a business owner? Are you an investor? And then, you know, here's kind of the pros and cons to, to each of these. I thought I was a business owner. And there was something that he wrote in there that was basically like, you know, if you can't leave your business for a year, without it functioning at the same level or, or better, then you don't have a business. You're a sole yes. proprietor. It, it relies yeah. on you. Yes. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've been living thinking I'm this business owner. I'm not a business owner. I'm a sole proprietor. And that was just a wake-up call that was like, wait a minute. I either need to build systems to truly be a business owner 
or I need to pivot to being an investor. And I wanted to do both. And so for me, I felt like the easier leap was since I'm already in business, I'm already, you know, I've started some companies. It's easier for me to build out the systems and the framework and make it system oriented versus leader oriented or, or running by the seat of your pants type of a business. And from there, I was able to scale myself out, which allowed me to pivot and transition to an investor, which has just been a lot of fun. So that book was just incredible. You know, I think one of the books that's had a profound impact on me from a top-down standpoint, like philosophical and just deep thinking is probably The Almanac of Naval Ravikant Mm. and just learning about time and leverage and human capital and scarcity and abundance and just so many things that I think are big picture that have really put a lot of things into perspective for me. That's awesome, man. All right, dude. Well, this has been amazing as I knew it would be, you know, having my bestie here on the show. Tell us where can people best connect with you at? Best place is lifestyleinvestor.com. Everything that kind of we do and produce is there from free to high ticket and everything in the middle. So I've got a blog, I've got a podcast, Lifestyle Investor Podcast, and then an online course, master classes, a mobile home park masterclass, a passive income masterclass, our flagship product, which is the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind, which is application-based. So all of that is available there. But for anyone in your audience that's interested in maybe next steps, like what could they do? Here's where I'm at and I don't know what's next. Our team is happy to do a a strategy session for free with anyone in your Better Life group. So that would just be lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash strategy. Perfect, man. I love it. Hey, real quick, what is the high ticket? I know a lot of people that are part of you or like part of your group and everyone raves about it and it's not cheap. What is it? What are people paying for? Like why, why do so many people rave about this? Well, we've been blessed to just kind of create really an amazing community of people. So the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind is a high ticket, $55,000 a year mastermind where it really has attracted some of the best and brightest, you know, across the U.S. We got rated by one publication as the top five mastermind of all the masterminds in 2022, which is really flattering. But it is just a group of like-minded people with expertise in every genre and industry you can think of. Many entrepreneurs running a business, many entrepreneurs that exited a business, exits in the sevens. Seven figures, eight figures, nine figures. We've got some people that are borderline 10-figure exits this year or next year. So everything across the board. We've got some big personalities. We've got some pro athletes. We've got some corporate executives, some high-performing salespeople. So we've got a little bit of everything. And we just teach basically best in class. Whoever's the best in class. Sometimes it's a member spotlight because they're best in class. Or we'll bring in an expert and whatever the industry is or wherever I feel like I'm an expert, I'll teach and I'll share. But one of the things I think people love is they come in and day one, we've got this spreadsheet of here, 50 plus unique tax strategies you can use right now where you will save more than the 55K per year (laughs) and getting in. So people right out of the gates are able to recognize what that looks like. And then besides the networking, besides the education, besides the tax strategy, then we do all kinds of deals. So I give access to the deals that I do with the mastermind, get them the preferred terms that I negotiate. And a lot of these are cash flowing deals. And But we cover everything. I mean, we've done everything from original content to music royalties, to SaaS, to 
cannabis, hard money lending, real estate. I mean, you name it. We've probably done it. Operating companies, healthcare. So it's been really fun and it's just, it's fun to learn. So it's, it's my favorite place to spend time. That's awesome, man. You know, back in the day, I would have been, I mean, I remember when I joined like GoBundance, for example, and back in the day, it was 500 a month. It was so much money. I just could not imagine spending 500 a month. And, and it's a little more expensive now, but like, I was just shocked. And I was even at a point in my life where I was very critical of anybody who would ever spend money on education like that. I'm like, the internet is there. Just go and read a book and you'll get everything you need. But what I've learned now is that the more I pay for high level math, more money I've made in life, I then reinvest a lot of that back in education. I join these groups. It's not necessarily, sometimes I get information like the tax strategy stuff, right? That, That sometimes, and has made me more money than those costs, but it's the other people willing to spend $55,000 to be part of a high network group. That's the room I want to be in. And the reality is at certain levels, you have to pay to get into those rooms with that level people. I mean, not that those people don't want to hang out with, you know, the rest of us, but sometimes they don't want to hang out all the time with the rest of us. You have to curate rooms. And that's what you've really done is you've curated a room where people are willing to do that. And that I've found, uh, in my life, I've never not seen a return on those kind of investments. Hundred so. percent return in yourself and your education, and it is a fact. Like there are people in our community, and probably in many of the other mastermind communities out there, that the average person is just never going to have access to them. Yeah, they're, they're just not. Like yeah. you're the one place you're going to get connected with them is you know in a community like that. And so it's fun because I get to be a student and yeah. I get to be curious. So I get to like learn, you know, inside of it. So even though it's something that I like to curate and facilitate, I get to step back and be a student and learn from all these really smart people who are way smarter than I am in so many different places. But you learn real fast. The collective genius of the group, of the room, like that's where the brilliance is. It's in everyone collaborating and participating. When you got 150 people that are some of the world's best and brightest, you can't not learn. You can't not get ahead. It's really pretty magical. I love it, man. Well, with that said, let's get out of here, man. Thank you so much for being a part of this today. This was fun. This is awesome. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Thank you. And that is the show. Thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of A Better Life with Brandon Turner. I hope you enjoyed the insights and the wisdom uh, brought to you today on the show. If you found value in this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Your feedback actually does help us improve the show. We look at the feedback, I look at the feedback, and we can reach more people with our message of living a better life. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow me on social, Beardy Brandon. And hey, before I go, this show is all about the habits, actions, and beliefs that can give you a better life. But in case you're interested and you want to know my opinion on what it takes to live the best life ever, and that includes some of my kind of weird spiritual beliefs maybe, Check out abetterlife.com slash best life. Abetterlife.com slash best life. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time on A Better Life with Brandon Turner.